Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. I've grown up with the situation in the Middle East as the omnipresent tinderbox of war. So I've always known bits and pieces of the story and of the fears and injuries on both sides. But today's guest, Eve Spangler, has quantum leaped my understanding with her book, Understanding Israel-Palestine, Race, Nation, and Human Rights in the Conflict. Combining careful analytical perspective... Eve is, after all, an associate professor of sociology at Boston College with a rich set of on-site observations through the annual trips to Israel-Palestine with her students. She asks and answers the questions we all need to know the answers to in order to achieve understanding, to see possibilities for the resolution of this smoldering tinderbox. Her testimony and witness are all the more powerful because she is the child of Holocaust survivors. Eve Spangler joins us now by phone from Boston College in Massachusetts. Eve, I'm delighted to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much for your invitation. I'm honored and delighted to be on your program. I know we only have a couple hours, and so we'll keep this (laughs) short because you've got to go off to the airport. Who are you picking up? I'm picking up a very dear friend of mine, Syed Achan, who is a Palestinian-American Quaker who's coming back to take up a position as a peace studies professor at Swarthmore, which is a Quaker school. But you're at Boston College. How did you connect with him? He was a speaker at a talk I went to about Palestine, and I wound up giving him a ride to a party, and we became friends, and we've been friends ever since. One of the things I love about your book, Understanding Israel-Palestine, is all of the little personal stories, and I think most of them born of the trips that you've led with students. Could you describe those trips, the format, how many people go, all of that? Sure. So I teach a course in the fall on human rights in the Israel-Palestine conflict. And while I deliver a lot of material, I'm also in that class a shameless advocate for using a human rights framework for Americans to address this conflict. And I found that in my history of learning about it, you know, you can learn a lot from books, but going and seeing is also very important, and I took myself over there to see it. And so I also constructed, along with a seminar, a trip for students over winter break. So over winter break, everyone in the seminar, we go for 10 days to Israel and Palestine. We talk to human rights activists, do homestays in a refugee camp. 
We meet with Bedouin in the desert. So we talk to everyday people. We go through checkpoints. We spend half our time in Israel, half in Palestine. And of course, we see the principal religious sites in the area. And then when people come home, I ask them to commit to some project, some work that they can do to transmit what they've learned to other people around them and to invite more Americans to be concerned about America's role in creating a just resolution to the Israel-Palestine conflict. The logistics started small because, you know, it wasn't a known entity. It started with 15 people and a tour guide who had a van that we couldn't take more than 15 because we needed two seats for the faculty people and two seats for the guide people and one seat for a guest. And now we're working with a, a different Christian political solidarity tour group, and we've got a big bus, and this year I'm taking 33 students, lots of B.C. adults along. The way I understand it is you walk just a little bit on the wild side as you do there. I mean, there's a couple of the stories that you share where there is actually some fear about well-being. Uh, One young woman who gets caught on the other side when stuff's going on and so on. Is there a significant element of danger? Is it more or less than other groups that go over there to visit? Well, (laughs) I hope my deans aren't listening to this. I don't think of us as running into physical danger. We go to great efforts not to expose anyone to physical danger. We have guides who speak Hebrew, guides who speak Arabic, and between each visit, we call ahead and we ask whether we're still welcome, whether they're aware of any roadblocks or any disturbances between the time that we booked with them and the current moment where we're setting out to visit them. So we really have not had too much trouble, although you're referring to Yasmin's story, I think, and I'll share that in a moment. I think the difficulties are emotional, that people are not used to bearing witness. We don't in America see some of the things that you see there. So we were on the very first trip, was in 2009, during Operation Cast Lead. And the day we arrived, there were 465 dead in Gaza. And the day we left, there were over 1,200 dead in Gaza. So there was a very high level of tension. And at one point, we were sitting in a Bedouin tent in the Negev talking with a village elder. And we saw this whole fleet of Israeli jets fly overhead and suddenly sort of drop down because, you know, in the Negev, you're two minutes flight time from Gaza, drop down to the altitude that they were going to be bombing and strafing from. And we understood what we were looking at. And that was a very tense moment and a very sad moment. So we have, I think, emotional bearing witness. It's hard work. And it's dangerous to your peace of mind, but it's not dangerous to your physical well-being. I think the story you were telling is from that same trip. We were in Jerusalem on a Friday, and it happened that I had five Muslim-American students on the trip. And they came to me and said, look, it's Friday, and we really, really want to go to the Al-Aqsa Mosque for the noon prayers. This is a very important and valuable part of our worship practice. And as I say, it was extremely tense. So I said, okay, well, you can do that, but then you have to leave immediately because the Al-Aqsa Mosque is inside a compound, the Haram al-Sharif, inside the old city, which is a walled enclosure. So you're behind a double set of walls. And the demonstrations begin right after the noon prayers end. And I said, I don't want anybody getting tear-gassed or caught in a cul-de-sac. So you have to come right back. And we were in a particular place. They were to come meet us. So they said yes, and we all agreed to that. And then the four boys returned very quickly. And I said to them, 
you left Yasmin? Where is Yasmin? And they said, oh, they made the girls go out by a different door. She's following right in our wake. Well, 10 minutes later, it was a very long 10 minutes in my life. You know, I aged 20 years. But Yasmin showed up, and she is, you know, generically Mediterranean-looking, petite, dark hair, dark eyes, olive skin, very, very pretty girl. But she was looking really pale. And I said to her, Yasmin, did you get tear gas? And she said, no, I got lost. They made me go out an unfamiliar door, and I was suddenly in the Jewish quarter, and I didn't know how to get back here. So I went into the very first store I came to and said to the young man working behind the counter, please, could you direct me back to the Arab quarter, to the Damascus Gate? And he said to her, well, why would you want to go there? And she said, I'm a student. My professor is there. My group is there. I have to rejoin them. So he said, oh, okay. What are you? <laughs> I kind of wish she had said I'm a human being. But what she said is I'm American. And he said, no, no, that's not what I'm asking. Are you Jewish? And she said, no, I'm Muslim. And he looked at her and said, what a waste of a pretty girl. (laughs) (laughs) And then he directed her back. So she was shocked, but she'd never actually been in any physical danger. You know, we should step back a little bit, Eve, because I know that this is a controversial topic to many people. And you, as a Jewish person, probably get heat from both sides on this pretty easily. Could you mention a little bit about your family history, which I think is relevant? And you don't start from this from a point of view where, you know, I don't care about Jews or anything like that. And some people maybe have that caricature of someone who's trying to apply human rights to that situation. Well, yes, thank you for that question. So I am Jewish and my family was devastated by the Holocaust. My grandmother perished in the Holocaust. I had uncles in concentration camps who managed to survive. My mom was the head chaperone on one of the very last children's trains, the Kindertransport, that was allowed to leave Nazi-occupied Austria. And she took 27 kids with two other young women on forged papers across Nazi Germany to safety in England. So she's kind of my hero and I hope to God I am never called upon to find out whether I have as much courage as she had in doing that. So I come from a family where the Holocaust is a pretty significant part of our history. And I think, you know, for many, many Jews, that leads to Zionism, that such a history and a sense that Jews need a room of their own, a safe house, and that Wherever that is going to be, anybody else who's there has to just get out of the way. For my family, they were also, I have to say, socialists and pretty secular people. For my family, that experience leads to a concern for human rights, a desire never to romanticize governments and states, to be vigilant about their tyranny and their murderous capabilities, and to insist on human rights as the standard by which we govern ourselves and are governed by states. Again, folks, we're talking to Eve Spangler. She's author of a recent book, Understanding Israel-Palestine, Race, Nation, and Human Rights in the Conflict. And Eve, one of the very early stories you start out with, and you have these in most chapters, I think there's at least one, and usually they're glimpses of people who've been on the trip. And in that story, you relate about only two of the three possibilities. You know what I'm referring to, that he finally got it when he says, oh, you can't have fast, cheap, and reliable, all three of them. You get to pick any two out of the three. Talk about it as that applies to Israel-Palestine. 
Oh, that's a fabulous question. So Israel says that it wants to be three things, democratic, Jewish, and to have all the land of Palestine between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Let me back up one moment and fill in a little sort of baseline information. Israel and Palestine together are a little bit larger than the size of New Jersey. They're situated on the eastern end of the Mediterranean, so that means before aviation, the land bridge between Europe and Asia, the land bridge between Africa and Asia. So it's from biblical times forward, one of the most multi-ethnic, multicultural, multiracial, multilingual, multi-everything places on earth. It is also the place that European Zionists who were kind of like the Back to Africa movement and the civil rights trajectory, and we can unpack that comparison, Zionists who decided they couldn't survive in Christian Europe, they couldn't survive the anti-Semitism, and wanted to build a safe house, wanted to build a room of their own, were given land within Palestine by the British under the Balfour Declaration and began building colonies there. And because this was essentially a European enterprise and they identified themselves as Europe, in fact, Herzl, their founder, said, you know, Palestine will be the rampart of civilization against barbarism. That would be, you know, just an unpleasantly racist statement from 120 years ago, except that Ehud Barak, who's a former prime minister and former defense minister, does also today go around referring to Israel as the villa in the jungle. So that sentiment lives on. But the Israeli founders, the Zionists, were very identified with Europe and European standards. So they wanted to be democratic. They wanted, of course, to be Jewish. Zionism wants an ethno-religiously exclusive state. And they wanted all the land. And on that land were people who were not Jewish. So you can have various combinations of any of those two factors, but you can't really have all three at once. So you could be Jewish and democratic if you had not built settlements and stayed inside of what's called Green Line Israel, where Jews are a, like 80% supermajority. Then you would be democratic, Jewish, and small, and you wouldn't have all the land. Or you could be democratic and have all the land, and then you would have to be a state of all your people, not just your Jewish citizens. And you'd have to be a multicultural democracy, which Americans should be familiar with. And that's something that the Zionists absolutely rejected because they want to be a Jewish state. And so those two combinations would have perhaps been workable. What they've opted for is the third combination, which is disastrous, which is to be Jewish and to have all the land and to forget about all but the shallowest facade of democracy. And so they're now running a system in which there are 12.2 million people between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, almost exactly half Israeli Jews and half Palestinian Christians and Muslims. And people have to remember Palestinians were the first Christians. Nazareth, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, those are all Palestinian cities in the Roman Empire. But the Israelis have chosen to be uh, Jewish and have all the land, and so half the people under the control of their state are not of the desired ethno-religious group, and therefore they are a problem that has to be managed in some way. And the ways that we see in the news are pretty ugly. And you really fill in a lot of that information in the book, Understanding Israel-Palestine. I really admire the lengths to which you've gone to be accurate and detailed and clear about this. Obviously, you're not taking sides against 
Jews or against Israel. But there is this tendency to view any criticism of Israel by a non-Jew as being anti-Semitism. What's your experience of that? I've been pretty lucky so far, I have to say. Generally speaking, because I'm Jewish, I'm referred to as a self-hating Jew rather than an anti-Semite. But so far, truthfully, the criticisms I've encountered, I'm very happy to engage with anybody on this subject as long as they don't scream and yell or call me names. And I'm certainly not, of course, anti-Jewish. I am for human rights, and I think that Zionism, as it has come to play out, as a political project to create an ethno-religiously exclusive state in a multicultural space is a disaster. But human rights would say from here forward, everybody who's here stays here. Nobody gets pushed into the sea. Everybody gets treated right. And so I don't worry too much about people who disagree with me. So far, truthfully, most of the opposition I've encountered is kind of silly. And so it hasn't been very scary. I mean, there's one young undergraduate at BC who's apparently running around saying that I have a lover in Hamas. <laughs> this is a radio broadcast, so your audience can't see me. See, everybody giggles. I, you know, it gives me the opportunity to say, oh, wow. So now Hamas is no longer a terrorist organization. Their new campaign is make love, not war. You know, <laughs> they, they've decided to skip right over Bar Raffaele and other, you know, tawny gold gorgeousnesses like that. And they've come to me, you know, a 70-year-old postmenopausal grandmother of four. Oh, yay. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I don't find that kind of thing terribly worrisome. I have been put on a bunch of hate websites, you know, and at first it was unnerving because I didn't know what the consequences of that would be. But I've just come to say, for those of us who are old enough, too young to be on Nixon's Enemies list. list. Right, but but old enough to want to be, this is my chance. (laughs) (laughs) So, but I'm willing to talk to anybody sensible. (laughs) Great little story. There was a guy who had been associated for 10 years with Quaker meeting down in Milwaukee and Madison and other things. At a certain point, he requested membership. His wife had been a member for 10 years and they'd been married under the care of the meeting, all this stuff. But this was in the about 1984. And we asked, you know, why now? What's leading you to do it now? And he said, well, because during Vietnam War, he never got on enemies list, but there was rumored it's out there. And now that Ronald Reagan was president and people who stand for peace and equality and justice are on his bad list. He said that he wanted to make sure, even though he's always <laughs> identified with Quakers, he wanted to make sure if they came to get the enemies list that his name was on it. So he wanted <laughs> to be an official member. A man of honor, yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. So there's one thing that you spell out in the book that I was so thankful that you did, Eve, because I had never quite understood how this worked. There's a certain number, a significant number, of non-Jews who live in the area that's designated as Israel now. And they're, I've heard, you know, okay, well, yeah, they're full citizens and all this. But then you spell out what the difference is between citizenship and nationality, which I'd never heard. Could you please provide our listeners that? Because I think it's, it's so invaluable in understanding how someone living in Israel who can vote and so on ends up being a second-class citizen. 
Oh, absolutely. So Israel has, as far as I know, a unique system of citizenship. It has two tiers. And 20% of the people in Israel, that is west of the Green Line, are also of Palestinian ancestry. So 20% of Israeli citizens are not Jews, but are Palestinians, again, Christians and Muslims. And so Israel has a two-tier citizenship system in which the bottom layer is you're a citizen, and people do have equality as citizens. They are equally entitled to vote. They are equally entitled to be elected and serve in the Knesset. They are equally entitled to use the national health care system. So those are the rights of citizenship. Then in addition to that, you have rights as the members of a nationality. And the two that count are, are you of the Jewish nation? Now, there the state, of course, is conflating religion and nationalism, but you can be a Jewish national citizen of Israel, or you can be a non-Jewish national and citizen of Israel. And the non-Jewish classification is pretty random. There's a hilarious story in Shlomo Zan's book about his father-in-law who emigrated to Israel and went to get his card and had come from Spain. And the clerk said, you know, okay, you're a Spanish national and an Israeli citizen, and this guy was from the Basque country. And he said, no, no, I'm Catalan. And so the clerk said, okay, you're a Catalonian national and an Israeli citizen. So Israel became the only country in the world to recognize Catalonia as a nation sometime in the early 1940s. So that's a pretty hodgepodge classification. It includes Catalonians and Circassians and then all the nationalities that would be familiar to all of us. But there is also an Arab nation, okay, so that the Israelis deny that the Palestinians are Palestinian. They make them generic Arabs. And if you are anything but a Jewish national and Israeli citizen, you have a lesser set of rights under Israeli law. You do not, for example, most importantly, perhaps, have the right to family unification. So if a Palestinian citizen of Israel travels to Boston College to do graduate work and meets a Franco-Palestinian or a Palestinian from Gaza or a Palestinian from the West Bank and marries them, they cannot bring their spouse back. And the Israeli Supreme Court just last year ruled that to permit Palestinian citizens of Israel family unification would be to commit national suicide. If you are a Palestinian Arab national Israeli citizen, you cannot buy land controlled by the Jewish National Fund. So there's all kinds of things that you can't do legally. And then, of course, there's also just general social prejudice so that government agencies, as we do in America with black and Hispanic and First Nations communities, your schools are less well-funded, your roads are less well-paved, the services in your community are of an inferior quality. So that's a kind of ill-administrative discrimination. Also, very importantly, if you are an Arab national Israeli citizen, you cannot serve in the army except for a very few Druze. And since there is a ferocious system of veterans' preference in Israel for jobs, for benefits, being excluded from those networks is, of course, also economically very consequential. That doesn't even include all of the, I think, pretty transparent methods used to take land that 
someone has yes. make it part of this Jewish National Fund and all of those things. But let me tell you one quick story about that. This is so meaningful to me on the trip. I think my students are kind of like, yeah, she's crazy about this, whatever, because I see it year after year, whereas they only see it that one time we're there. There's a village called Alwaloja, and it has historically been identified with Bethlehem. When Palestinians say village, they mean what we mean by neighborhood. So it's a neighborhood within Bethlehem. If you get in your car in Alwaloja, it's literally a three-minute drive to the Church of the Nativity. So Alwaloja folks have always thought of themselves as part of Bethlehem. The Israeli government came along and rezoned Alwaloja to be an area, a neighborhood of Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Bethlehem are not very far apart. So they get rezoned into Jerusalem. Now, this might sound like some very obscure point, except that Palestinians, to be allowed to live in Jerusalem, from which they've been expelled, require something that's the equivalent of our green card. They require a Jerusalem ID. So what the Israelis did was they rezoned the whole village of Alwalaja into Jerusalem, and they issued no Jerusalem IDs. So people became trespassers in their own homes. So the first year, we met with a guy named Mahmoud, who had just come back from prison. He was arrested for trespass, sitting in his own living room in a house that his grandfather had built, that his father was born in, that he was born in, that his three children were born in. He was sitting in his home and was arrested for trespass. The second year we came there, his house was under demolition orders. Mahmoud was gone. The third year, the house was gone. The fourth year, there was an Israeli McMansion. Oh, so frustrating and crazy. And this kind of death by bureaucracy. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I'm not after you. It's just I'm following the rules. And yet the rules are the same kind of thing that happened with Jim Crow and segregation in this country or apartheid down in South Africa. You make a rule that makes sure you can take whatever you want from someone. I mean, I guess it's probably the same thing that happened with the ghettos in Warsaw and everything else. You know, Just yeah. make a rule where a person can be, can't be, and pretty soon you can take everything that they have, including their lives. Yeah, it's very, very frustrating. And the present Israeli regime is, of course, making even worse rules so that even Jewish Israelis who are dissidents within their own country are subject to penalties. I do want to remind our listeners that we are speaking with Eve Spangler, who is an associate professor of sociology at Boston College. This is Spirit in Action, which is a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web at northernspiritradio.org, where you'll find more than 10 years of our programs for free listening and download. And we certainly had a number of programs concerned with the Middle East and Israel and Palestine and all of the thorny issues in that. That area. Also on NorthernSpiritRadio.org, you'll find links to our guests. So you'll find the link to Eve Spangler's book, Understanding Israel-Palestine, and other connected issues. There's also a place where you can leave comments, and we do ask that you leave a comment when you visit our site, because we love two-way communication. Let us know what you're thinking. Help guide us with your insights. Also on that site, there's a place to click support, and that is how we fund this. 
This work is entirely supported by your donations, so please click support when you visit NorthernSpiritRadio.org. Again, Eve Spangler is here, and she's been leading a course since 2008 at Boston College, concerned with this area and gathered information and taken students over to the Middle East to actually see on the ground, have their firsthand experiences, which I so appreciate. Now, you were just talking, Eve, about the rights of citizenship and nationality and all of that. And by the way, there is this weird issue of definition of what a Jew is. There's the question also of whether it's a genetic thing, it's because I'm I have the right genes or something, or whether it's a religious thing. So is it possible to be a religious Jew, do Aliyah, you're a citizen now of Israel, you're living there, and I decide I'm not religious. As a matter of fact, I'm an atheist, and I want to, don't want anything to do with that religious crap, which is all the more common, particularly in Christian communities in the United States. So you're there. Does that mean that you lose your nationality or something? Or No. Once the Israeli state has accepted you as a Jewish national and an Israeli citizen, you can decide to be atheist and nothing will, again, as long as you're white and educated, nothing will happen to you. And even if you're an Ethiopian or an Arab Jew, nothing will happen to you because of your atheism. Nasty things may happen to you because you're of your skin color or your perceived ethnicity, but you know, not on the grounds that you will be somehow drummed out of the Jewish community. But the genetic piece has been very shaky. I think when genetic genealogy sort of first became available, the Israeli state was very enthusiastic and thought if we do genetic testing, we will establish that contemporary Jews are the direct genetic descendants of the Israelites of the Bible, and that will strengthen our claim on this land. Now, I don't think as an aside, anyone denies that there is a historical association between Judaism and Palestine, Palestinian and Israeli land. The question is on what terms you come there and on what terms you live among your neighbors. But anyway, there was a lot of genetic testing done and people immediately pointed out it doesn't prove anything unless you're also genetically testing the Palestinians. Well, it turned out that when you do those tests, that Israelis and Palestinians have three common male ancestors back about 8,000 years ago, and about 80% of Jews and 80% of Palestinians are genetically cousins. (laughs) So I think what we need in the background here is that old song, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, that... Stephen Stills thanks you for the plug. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Yeah, really. (laughs) So that research got pretty quickly suppressed. Then they tried research on some very orthodox women, and they discovered that they had no genetic ancestors from the Middle East. They were the daughters of converts and intermarriages. I personally resist genetics for anything but medical purposes. I think it it tends toward racism, even when it's not meant that way. I think the human rights position is, we're here now. How do we go forward living decently together? And I think there it's important for people to know this is something I didn't know until this year. In the West Bank, in the occupied West Bank, there is a community of Jews, the Samaritans, living in Nablus, which is one of the most militant cities in the West, anti-occupation militant cities in the West Bank. And there's this Jewish community, the Samaritans, living right in the middle of Nablus. 
They practice Jewish worship. They use the Torah. They dress as Orthodox Jews. They are recognized as Jews by the Israeli state, who gives them Israeli passports and Israeli driver's licenses and, and license plates. And they live there unmolested. So when we were in Nablus this past January, there was a community leader there who was very militant, very anti-occupation, going on and on about the Israelis and the Zionists. And I said to him, well, you know, but there are Jews across the street, the Samaritans, what about them? And he looked at me really shocked and said, they're our neighbors. They have been here forever. They're Arab Jews. They come as neighbors. They do not come as conquerors. We have no problem with them. And I thought, well, that's a terrific hashtag when you're speaking English, but let's ask the Samaritans how they feel. So then we went and we met with the Samaritans, and they said, oh, we've never had any trouble with our Palestinian neighbors. We're not harassed. We're not stoned. They don't spit at us. They don't growl at us. We're perfectly safe here. There's no problem. So I think that's probably where we need to go. People who come as neighbors are welcome. People who come as conquerors are not. One of the things that you make clear in your book, Eve, that I just hadn't grasped before, is the very significant difference between the possibility of a Jewish homeland and a Jewish state. Could you explain the difference for our listeners? Absolutely. So early in Zionism, let me backtrack here. I think this is a good place to make the analogy with the civil rights movement. You have in Christian Europe, you have Jews who are historically a desperately mistreated population. Uh, There's prejudice, there's exclusion, there's ghettoization, there's pogroms, and eventually, of course, there's the ultimate evil of the Holocaust. So Jews in Christian Europe have a problem. The same, of course, was true for African Americans in the United States, brought in slavery, lynched, mistreated, Jim Crow, all the way through to Ferguson and Black Lives Matter. It's a population that has a problem in the host society. What to do about that? So for many people, assimilation is really their desire. They want to go along to get along. They don't want to be hassled. If they get their kids off to school and they go to work and they remember to pick up the dry cleaning on the way home and send their mother-in-law a birthday card, that's work enough. And so that's the assimilationist strategy. And, you know, both among African Americans and among Jews in Europe, probably that was the predominant response. There are people who, you know, have more energy, maybe more foresight, and who want to reform the system which is causing this systematic mistreatment. And so you have the civil rights movement with all its varied branches in America. And you have socialism, which, of course, also had varied branches in Christian Europe for the Jews. And then you have a minority of people who decide, you know what, it's never going to work here no matter what we do. We have to leave. And so you have the Back to Africa movement within the American black community, and you have Zionism within the Jewish community in Europe. And there were various branches of Zionism, so I'm coming to the state versus the homeland. Now, you have to start up front by recognizing that Israel is economically vastly more successful than Liberia. But apart from that, the parallels between Back to Africa and Zionism are really quite startling. The majority of people who were supposedly going to benefit from Back to Africa or Zionism did not want to leave the United States or Europe and wanted no part of it. The leaders in both movements were very skilled. They managed to lobby governments to okay the project, to raise money for their project, and to recruit settlers for their project. And crucially, they had allies 
And those allies were a pretty mixed bag. Some allies of Zionism and of Back to Africa were genuine human rights advocates who thought, you know, you want to leave, you don't feel safe here, you want to go elsewhere, I'm going to help you with that. But some of them were very racist and were very happy to see blacks expelled from America, Jews expelled from Europe. Both movements picked the places they picked largely because great powers ceded land to them in the particular places, Liberia and Palestine. And both of them, when they arrived, rode roughshod over the rights of the indigenous population. So there were very strong parallels between back to Africa and Zionism. Now, within Zionism, there were debates. And so there were what you would call cultural Zionists who wanted to go to Palestine because clearly there are historic ties there and wanted to add themselves into a multicultural community, but away from Christendom, away from Christian anti-Semitism, away from those people who said Jews were the killers of Christ, the bringers of the Black Death, etc., which is what Christian anti-Semitism in Europe looked like. And they wanted a homeland. They were not very specific about demanding a state. And then there were the political Zionists who wanted not only a state, but an ethno-religiously exclusive state. And there is the problem because this is creating an ethnocracy in the middle of a very culturally diverse space. Now, among the people who were cultural Zionists who went to Israel, but who deplored this ethno-religiously exclusive state, were such people as Martin Buber, who said excessive nationalism can lead only to a tiny state of Jews completely militarized and unsustainable pretty smart guy. Hannah Arendt, one of my heroes, said a Jewish homeland should never be sacrificed to the pseudo-sovereignty of a Jewish state built on Arab suppression. So long before the state of Israel was even founded, there were people who were saying, don't go there. This is a cul-de-sac. And I have to say, I agree with them. And this explanation that you did in understanding Israel-Palestine really helped me to see that our fixation with the two-state solution might really be preventing us from achieving the best solution. I mean, what if all of the people between the river and the sea, Jewish or not, were equal citizens of equal nationality and they had a single government? That certainly had been a possibility a hundred years ago as a Jewish homeland, but not as a Jewish state. It really gave me food for thought beyond the mantra of a two-state outcome. Yeah, I think critically now we're at a time when things are changing very rapidly. The Netanyahu government now, Netanyahu has said very publicly there will be no two-state solution as long as he's in the government. The president, Reuben Rivlin, is saying let's make it one state and give all the Palestinians the citizenship rights. Now, of course, there's a trick because they still won't be Jewish nationals, but at least they would be citizens. The deputy foreign minister, the education minister, the new ambassador from Israel to the UN are all saying, we're just going to go ahead and annex it and put the Palestinians in the Area A cities, which is Indian reservations, basically, is the model there. So I think we are at a breaking point where the Israelis are going to create the one-state situation, whether through the collapse of the PA, the building of settlements, or the outright annexation. And I think the counter-move by the Palestinians then will be to reframe their struggle from one for national liberation of a country that is not going to be born 
into a struggle for civil rights within a single state. And that will not be an easily won struggle. It will be a hard struggle. But I think it's winnable. And, you know, I want to inject a note of hope here. I think it's winnable because there are tools. The boycott movement is increasingly powerful and impactful. We do live in a, God knows, imperfect, but we do live in a democracy. We can ask our government to change on this issue, as it did on civil rights, as it did on the war in Vietnam, as it did on women's rights, gay rights, environmental issues. And those conversations are already starting in churches and on campuses across the country. So we as Americans have tools at least to change the American role. And we have partners in Israel and Palestine, people who are working both within their own communities and across those two communities to think about what a democratic state for all its people would look like, what water would look like, what roads would look like, what architecture would look like. The Palestinians and Israelis, apart from their god-awful politicians on both sides, are actually very compatible cultures. They're both ferociously interested in education. Palestinians have the highest per capita PhDs of any Arab population. They're both extremely entrepreneurial. Palestinians had a favorable balance of trade with Europe for a century before Zionism. And so the substrate of the ordinary people who live there create the possibility of an educated, entrepreneurial, prosperous, stable society. Now, you know, of course, saying apart from the politicians is a little bit like saying apart from that, Mrs. Lincoln, did you like the play? (laughs) (laughs) But we have partners and we have tools and we can move forward to creating a human rights-based approach in which everybody between the river and the sea has equal rights and can live, get on with having a normal life. Are the people of Israel becoming more or less or staying the same in terms of religious fervor? I'm afraid that religious devotion and devotion to the idea like we're Jews, just like the movement in the United States, like we have to be a Christian nation, that that works against the likelihood of a happy outcome. What is the direction of that within Israel and maybe within the Jewish community in the United States now? Well, I think the Jewish community in the United States is more and more bifurcated. There is a growing interest in orthodoxy among young Jews and a growing, at the same time, also growing number who are saying, yeah, whatever. And so it's sort of the sensible middle that's eroding. I think in Israel, there's a very explicit program among the orthodox and the ultra-orthodox for women to have as many as 10 children And the thought is that in a single generation, then they could replace all the Holocaust dead, which, frankly, I find quite offensive because nobody's going to replace my grandmother. But there is that tendency. I think the best characterization that I know of comes from, there's a columnist in a very good blog called 972 named Noam Shizov, who's a Israeli. What he says is that most Jewish Israelis would prefer perpetual occupation to either the one or the two-state solution because, again, the basic dilemma is they want to control the Palestinians. If they can't expel them, either through physical expulsion, round them up in cattle trucks and dump them across the border, as happened in 47 to 49, or by making life so difficult that they leave voluntarily, that's kind of the ethnic cleansing sociocide strategy. If they can't do that, then they just want to keep them under control. 
And for that, they would just as soon have the occupation because occupied Palestinians live under Israeli military law in which they have no rights at all and in which Israeli military courts produce a 99% conviction rate when they even bother to try people. Mostly they just hold them on indefinite administrative detention. So the preference, I think, of most Israelis would be neither the one-state nor the two-state solution, but perpetual occupation. I think we may ultimately not be able to dissuade them, but we as Americans certainly can ask our government to stop supporting that with a blank check of financial, military, and diplomatic cover. This connects also with what strategies or framework we need to look at the Middle East with. There's one section of the book where you talk about, you know, do we view it as genocide, apartheid, ethnic cleansing, or is it a human rights lens that we want to use about? No, we don't have time to go through all of those, although I found them all very interesting. Would you care to highlight any points about that? Well, I think that the framework, and clearly it's a violation of human rights, is that the plan really ultimately is about ethnic cleansing. Apartheid is the more commonly used term, and it's descriptively okay because it means apartness or separateness. And given that there are these different levels of rights and different legal systems, there's some descriptive validity there. But I don't think it gets at the motive force. The motive force is Zionism, political Zionism, that wants to be a Jewish-only state in all the land. And that requires ethnic cleansing because half the people in that land are not Jews. Now, by ethnic cleansing, I don't necessarily mean mass murder. That would be genocide. Zionism does not require dead Palestinians. It requires absent Palestinians. Killing certainly is one way to get them to be absent. But there are many other ways to get them to be absent or completely dominated. And that, I think, is what's going on there, and that is what I think the human rights framework has to call out and stand against. Let me just add, I guess, a couple of people when I say human rights sort of yawn and they say, well, no one's going to get up and say, I'm for rape and pillage, so isn't that a bit of a cliche to say you're for human rights? Yes, perhaps it is. I hope it is. I hope everybody thinks it's self-evidently true that everybody's entitled to human dignity and safety. The advantage of human rights is it's forward-looking. It's less focused on what happened in 1878 and what happened in 1921 and more focused on we're all here now. How do we do this right? But it also is true that human rights does require you, when you've looked through that lens, to take sides, to do something about what you know. The truth isn't halfway between Martin Luther King and the Ku Klux Klan. The truth isn't halfway between a sex trafficker and a child who's been hijacked to the sex trade. So we need to take sides, I think, when we look through the human rights lens and stand up for the human rights of citizens and and of individuals and against states who would systematically violate those rights. You know, there's one of the issues about human rights. You deal with this in the book, and you talk about how Israel uses the fear card so well. You know, it's this this idea that, you know, they're all out to, to eradicate us, which, of course, was what happened in the Holocaust. There was an attempt to actually eradicate Jews. So it's not completely unrealistic to fear that eradication of Jews, at least, you know, 70 years ago, that was a pretty active program at that time. So that fear card is played. Human rights versus I get to survive. 
Actually, I don't know how many people, if they believe that their survival's on the line, won't justify anything. And certainly the war on terror, you know, you say, well, we're afraid Muslims are going to kill us, so therefore we can torture and human rights don't matter anymore. I think that's a pretty common point of view. And as a matter of fact, I think a lot of people probably are of the view that even if it involves me killing 10 other people, as long as I get to stay alive, I don't really care about their lives. And so human rights means one thing when you're facing eradication versus how do we be nice in society. I'm certainly in favor of human rights. And I do want both the Jewish people and Israel to be able to continue to exist. Uh, one guest I had on a year ago talks about, essentially it's PTSD. It's inherited because of the Holocaust and pogroms and everything else you mentioned. Absolutely. Yes, I think there is both the sort of what I would say authentic fear that's grounded in people's experiences. And, you know, I remember at one point after I was married, going with my husband back to Austria and visiting some family who remained there and going through photo albums and just there was this endless recitation of and she died in the Holocaust and this one died in the Holocaust and that one. So that is, you know, to some degree authentically grounded in people's experience. There is also, of course, a layer in which the Israeli government cynically manufactures this. And there's a wonderful film out called Defamation made by an Israeli filmmaker, Yoav Shamir, who's a bit of a young smart aleck, very funny guy. And he's grown up Jewish in Israel, and he hears about anti-Semitism every day, but he's never experienced it. So he sets out on a quest to make a film about anti-Semitism around the world. And he winds up showing the way in which the Israeli state, in the most cynical way, just inculcates fear, particularly in young people. So that's you know something your listeners can, can go get on Netflix or Amazon. But I think the thing I would have to say, and that has struck me in dealing with both Israelis and Palestinians, is first of all to reiterate the lesson of the Samaritans. There is safety in neighborliness. There is ultimately no safety in conquest. I mean, at best, you wind up living in a stockade. But also, I want to say, I think, that even in the face of the most repressive, murderous, restrictive situations, people make choices. And we know this from every place. We know this from black prison writings, from Malcolm's autobiography and Claude Brown. We know this from Solzhenitsyn and the Gulag. We know this from Viktor Frankl and Elie Wiesel and Primo Levi in, in the concentration camps. In the worst circumstances, people make choices. Some collaborate with the oppressor. Some inform on others and throw others under the bus. Some people help others. Some people keep hope alive. Some people abandon hope. And the people who give me hope are the people that I've met who, even in the face of murderously difficult circumstances, choose humanity. So you have, for example, a group in Israel and Palestine called Parents Circle of the Bereaved. These are families who have lost children to the occupation. On the Israeli side, largely families whose children were blown up by suicide bombers. And on the Palestinian side, families whose children were killed by Israeli military. And this parent circle of the bereaved, people reach out to each other across that divide to say, no more children dying. 
Now, honestly, I don't know if I would have the courage if someone killed someone in my family to reach out to the community from which the killer came. But these people have made that choice, including very prominently, for example, this woman, Nurit Pellet, whose daughter was blown up in a suicide bombing at a shopping mall, who's very close friends with a Palestinian whose daughter was gunned down by an Israeli, nine-year-old daughter, Abir Aramin, was gunned down, shot at close range in the back of the head by an Israeli border guard. And they work together for peace. You know, I'm encouraged when I meet an Israeli soldier who told me, I grew up loving my dad. I knew my dad was in the 73 war. I know my dad's a good man. So when I thought about him being in the war, I thought, well, he would have only killed bad people. And then this young man became part of breaking the silence, began meeting, and a part of combatants for peace, began meeting Palestinians on the other side, met a man whom he liked very much, who was also a good man, who was the Palestinian, who was not only in the 73 war, but in some of the same battles that his father fought in, who could have killed his father or been killed by his father. And he said to me, when I saw that he was a good man, I understood that my whole life was built on a lie and I had to rebuild it from the ground up. So there are people who make those choices, and those are the people I admire. Well, and I admire you, Eve, for taking on such a thorny issue and doing it with such compassion, doing it with firsthand knowledge as well as the historical information that you've gathered. I really think you've done an excellent job in writing Understanding Israel-Palestine, Race, Nation, and Human Rights in the Conflict. Folks, we have been speaking with Eve Spangler. She's Associate Professor at Boston College. She self-describes as doing the work in public sociology, a place where scholarship and social justice meet. And I really think what we've heard from you today and what we've read in in Understanding Israel-Palestine reflects that, Eve. I thank you so much for doing that work, for exposing all the minds to a better way of seeing things with love and compassion and hope for the future, and especially for joining me here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much, Mark. It's a fabulous program and such a wonderful conversation. And I'm easily reached, spangler at bc.edu. Anybody who wants to email and continue the conversation, I'm very happy to do that. I'll put that link up on northernspiritradio.org. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for invaluable production assistance on this program, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.